grateful for these rather kind and charming uh, welcome by uh, the rector of your university, by uh, the minister of uh, research and education, and by the secretary of uh, the Holman Prize. And I'm impressed by the uh, rather comprehensive uh, introduction of my uh, colleague, although I uh, also feel usually ambivalent about uh, introductions that can uh, raise uh, expectations only above the level I can meet. Anyhow, I'm also glad to be uh, to learn to know uh, uh, Stavanger, I must say. I'm here for the first time and uh, I'm impressed by, uh, by this rather beautiful and yet uh, industrious and, and lively growing uh, city. Ladies and gentlemen, the 20th anniversary, and Mrs. Rector has mentioned already uh, two anniversaries, I'm referring to uh, two other ones. The 20th anniversary of the agreement, which Norway is uh, affiliated with uh, the European Union, remains somewhat in the shadow of the bicentennial of uh, your constitution, whose celebration takes, of course, pride of place in Norway this year. However, uh, through this uh, agreement of Norway with the European Union, I take it to be the first move towards a post-national future, Norwegian democracy is tightly wedded to the fate of democracy in the European Union, on which I will focus today. I will deal with the problems currently facing the Union with a view to a constitutional issue that is uh, of importance for beyond uh, the boundaries of uh, Europe, namely the question of whether the democratic procedure, which is up to now only established within the framework of uh, nation states, can be extended beyond national boundaries. In other words, can the process of European unification lead to a form of democracy that is at once supranational and situated above the organizational level of a state? Today, the issue of a supranationalization of democracy has become more urgent than ever because the national democracies are becoming more and more entangled in problems that arise out of the growing discrepancy between, on the one side, a world society that is becoming increasingly interdependent, and on the other side, a world of states that remain fragmented. This problem is reflected within the European Union in a democratic deficit that has been recognized for decades. Dieter Grimm, one of the most distinguished judges of the German Federal Constitutional Court, has recently in the Frankfurter Allgemeine presented a convincing summary of his view uh, of that democratic deficit, a view 
that is shared by many, if not most, experts. He identifies three causes of the increasing distance that separates the decision-making processes of the European authorities from the political will formation of European citizens. The democratic will of European citizens has almost no impact uh, because European policies at Brussels are uncovered from the politics in the national arenas. That means politics in which citizens are still uh, involved, who are reading newspapers, who are voting, and so on. Krim uh, sees the first cause as residing in the fact that a particular pattern of policies was raised to the level of constitutional law and thereby immunized against the usual process of political change. Mainly through the judgments of the European Court of Justice, the direct actionability of basic economic freedoms as subjective rights has removed decisions over alternative economic policies from the democratic process. This fact had major consequences as neoliberal economic policies were implemented across the globe. As a result, the negative integration of different national societies and integration through market freedoms took priority over a positive integration, which is accomplished through the will formation of citizens themselves. This is just political science jargon, negative versus positive integration. The second course that Grimm mentions is the unpolitical way of a policy making at the European level that proceeds independently of uh, democratic input. This self-immunization of Brussels vis-à-vis the national public spheres is a consequence of the interplay between institutions which are either free from any legitimation pressure, as in the case of the European Court of Justice and the Commission, or whose decisions are not sufficiently legitimated, as in the case of the European Council and the Council of Ministers. National elections alone cannot authorize representatives of different governments to participate in a decision-making which has an impact on other nations as a whole. I mean, what is violated is the democratic principle that's the set of citizens who elect those representatives is identical with the set of citizens on which they have an impact. Finally, as a third course of the existing democratic deficit, Grimm identifies the remoteness of the European Parliament from the citizens whose interests it is supposed to represent. According to Grimm, strengthening the Parliament, though in, his, in itself necessary, cannot solve the problem as long as the communication networks necessary to connect the citizens and the parliament are lacking. What is lacking in the first place is moreover a European electoral law with European political parties that could field pan-European lists of candidates. 
Your team parties would have to organize and conduct election campaigns that are recognizably different in teams and personnel from national elections, and that never happened since 79 in any of our member states. Peter Grimm regards this third deficit as so serious that his token analysis surprisingly leads to a defensive recommendation because of the lack of the necessary prerequisites. Granting the European Parliament more competences would even worsen the existing democratic deficits. This is the conclusion of Peter Grimm. However, this recommendation is uh, implausible since it is based on the assumption that the status quo could be frozen. This expectation is not only at odds with the dynamics of economic globalization that increasingly restricts the freedom of action of individual nation states, the fragility of the status quo becomes especially firm once we extend the perspective of the legal expert beyond his field. I mean, Grimm is, after all, a lawyer, and speaking is a lawyer. I would like to mention four of those pressing political challenges to which European politics must uh, respond uh, with uh, rather more than less. Europe with deeper democratic integration. Uh, I know that uh, I uh, meet uh, with this line of argument a certain resistance and also this resistance uh, will become my topic. Um, these pressures for more integration concern first the imbalance in power relations that, the, uh, that has developed within the Union. Second, the threat to the political culture in many countries of our post-imperialist Europe. Third, the disintegration of the achievements of the welfare state. And finally, Europe's failure to live up to its role in world policies. The first goal of unification, I'm running quickly through these four challenges. The first goal of unification, the one that was explicitly pursued from the beginning, was to secure peace within Europe while simultaneously integrating the German nation after the defeat of its criminal regime. Supported by great majorities of the nation itself. Because both of these objectives have in fact been achieved, the shift in power that has occurred in recent years is threatening to undermine the relations of trust among member states today. In the course of the crisis management of the past years, Germany's demographic and economic overweight within the Union, and especially within the Eurozone, has led it to take on a leadership role, which is in fact urged upon it, but mainly inspires fear, and which Germany is now using albeit tacitly and even reluctantly in its own national interest. As a result, Germany is again becoming trapped 
in the dilemma associated with the semi-hegemonic status that it had assumed since 1871 and was able to overcome only after two world wars thanks to the European unification. Today, Germany itself must have the greatest interest in leading the EU beyond a stage of development in which leadership of a single member state is both possible and necessary. Second point, going beyond this one-sided goal of uh, rehabilitating a member of the family of nations which has become conspicuous, European integration also involves the hope that the countries involved would both keep tabs on and encourage each other in overcoming fatal mentalities and dispositions. Through joint efforts, a liberal political culture was supposed to preclude a relapse into the bad habits of times when all of our countries except Norway, maybe, uh, has been uh, empires. Today, this hope in a self-paternalist civilizing process is being denied by reinvigorated anti-Semitism, right-wing populism, and even racism, which in some places reach even into government circles, as the example of Hungary shows. To be sure, growing social inequality has led to a radicalization of political mentalities everywhere. But the general trend towards xenophobia and nationalism caused by economic uncertainty and growing cultural and ethnic pluralism has acquired explosive force within the European Union and especially within the Eurozone. The fact that fears of social decline and prejudice have been channeled both against the monster Brussels and against the respective European neighboring peoples cannot be explained solely in terms of the course taken by the banking and sovereign debt crisis either. It, can, it was less a crisis itself than its interpretation that played an aggravating role. The pattern and the level of development of national economies provided the explanation for the guilt and the innocence of whole nations. This type of crisis interpretation first directed attention to national collectivities and diverted it away from the fact that the winners and losers of the crisis in the different countries belong to the same social classes. The only way out of this relapse into a nationalist division of Europe is to continue the integration process in a democratic direction. Third, the creation of the common economic zone and the single currency was associated in addition with the promise of increased prosperity for all. In fact, for decades, the populations perceived the European project as a positive sum game and embraced it. In the course of, the, of a neoliberal economic globalization, however, this idea of a social Europe has perceptively failed with the reactions for failure uh, 
reasons for the failures mainly residing in Europe itself. Certainly, in most OECD uh, societies, the social gap between classes and generations, between employed and the unemployed, and between the educated elites and the poorly educated has deepened and tensions between locals and migrants have increased. That's for, for almost all OECD countries. But these conflicts, these potentials of conflicts, need not have discharged in resistance against European unification as such. This emotion spread only in the course of a crisis politics that has divided Europe because of its glaring social injustice. However, a shift to solidarity-based policies for mastering the continuing crisis will not be possible without transferring additional sovereignty rights to the European level, which in turn requires an institutional reform that strengthens the European Parliament. Finally, another political goal, namely that Europe should acquire a global political profile of its own, may have only gradually dawned upon Europeans at the time of the bipolar world order while living under the nuclear shield of the United States. Since uh, the end of this incubation period, however, the idea of the Union, uh, the idea that the Union should play an independent role in international affairs and world politics has taken shape even if not with equal impact in all EU member states. According to this idea, Europe in the division of labor with the military power of the United States should speak out as a civilizing voice of post-heroic societies in support of the enforcement of international law and of securing an international peace order. This idea has not taken root, but given uh, the conflicts over Ukraine at its own front door and in view of the current wildfire, wildfires in Syria, Iraq and Israel, this more or less idealist goal seems to be turning into a current political necessity. Like these conflicts, the new types of rebellions in North Africa and Southeast Asia, as well as the murderous militias in Sub-Saharan Africa, are bringing home to us that Europe must learn to speak with one voice in matters of foreign and security policy. Now, all these pressures on the Union as a whole have been aggravated in the Eurozone by special problems of a monetary union operating under suboptimal conditions. Here, the executive, as always in times of crisis, felt compelled to empower itself in an alliance with the Commission and the European Central Bank. The national governments that are assembled in the Eurogroup of the European Council have extended their scope for action at the cost of their national parliaments and as a result have greatly exacerbated the existing shortfall in legitimacy. The European Parliament did not benefit 
from the increase in competences enjoyed by the EU bodies as a result of reform measures of recent years, even when the Parliament participated in the legislative process. Moreover, the measures that has been taken were necessary indeed to stabilize government budgets in the short run. But the continuing trend towards growing imbalances between national economies can be halted in the long run only within a framework of the union with a common fiscal, economic, and even social policy. And the unavoidable transfers across national borders uh, can uh, then uh, uh, can uh, then uh, be uh, only uh, legitimated once you also uh, take into consideration uh, the uh, uh, reform of uh, institutions and that includes basically uh, the uh, um, uh, empowerment, the further empowerment of uh, the parliament uh, and uh, a uh, restructuring uh, uh, of uh, the communication networks uh, all over Europe. I'm coming to that, but in uh, listening to my last sentences, you will imagine that most observers and almost all politicians and most of the citizens throw up their hands at this uh, point at latest because, uh, as opinion polls indicate, such a change in policies and especially a corresponding institutional reform are, to say the least, unpopular in all of the countries involved. Uh, but looking at this trap in which Europe is now captured, uh, looking at this more from a more sober point uh, of view, uh, one has to add one thing, namely that the demoscopic observation that certain goals and policies are not to be implementable is valid always only under conditions of the status quo. And in our case, among these conditions of the present context, it is the most important one, is the fact that political elites have avoided since half a century ever turning European issues into topics of national public uh, arenas. Therefore, the outcome of persistent, tensioned, adequately informed and encompassing public controversy over relevant alternatives where they to be conducted would be completely open. The results of those campaigns would be completely open. Dieter Grimm rightly calls for Europeanizing European elections, I mean. Um, the defeatist election forecasts are cheap as long as public discourses and even short sleeves campaigns are not being conducted 
for example, on the question of whether the short-term disadvantages of solidarity of the so-called donor countries with the recipient countries do not pay off for the donor countries in the medium and in the long term either. On the other hand, the institutional framework of the Union is geared to the cohesion and stability of a highly fragmented political community and hence precisely uh, to avoiding uh, such uh, campaigns. the aim of this whole institutional design, as it is, exists now, is not conflict resolution and a European-wide generalization of interest, but consensual decision-making based on carefully bracketing possible conflicts. So much for my analysis, and I uh, have no easy recommendation how to get out of this trap uh, either. However, many observers do not think that considerations of changes in institutional design are at all relevant, because they look for the cause of the stagnation of the unification process in a completely uh, different place. And uh, at first glance, uh, they seem to be right if they identify as first cause the lack of uh, trust among nations. In fact, there is a lack of mutual trust that citizens of different nations would have to show each other as a precondition for their willingness to adopt a common perspective when making political decisions on shared federal issues. Thus, the salient projection, the, the salient objection to expanding the EU into a supranational democracy is phrased in terms of there is no European nation. Yet, the observed lack of mutual trust supports this no hemos thesis only if we, from my point of view, misinterpret this lack in a substantialist way. Let me offer a quick historical remark by way of clarification. In European states, in our European states, that emerge from national unification movements, uh, a national consciousness was fostered, indeed produced by schools, the military, national historiography, and the press throughout the 19th century. It became superimposed on uh, this kind of national consciousness, became superimposed on older dynastic and religious ties, as well as on local forms of life and loyalties. Therefore, we should not confuse this older, informal, or grown solidarities that conventionally develop in families and in neighborhoods in pre-political communities. We should not mistake these solidarities uh, between a baleful mixture. No, excuse me. We should not mistake it for uh, uh, the legally constructed forms of uh, solidarity among members of our nation states. I want to point out that nationalism always grows a baleful mixture 
of these two historically different forms of solidarity, home and legally uh, constructed forms of solidarity. No nation, if we understand the word in the modern sense, arose without political mobilization of the masses. National nations are composed of citizens and form political communities that did not develop spontaneously, but were instead legally constructed, and that you, I know that you uh, perceive much more vividly in larger nations like France or Germany or Italy, which has been much more fragmented than, for instance, Norway. Um, contrary to the ethno-national ideologies that would like to suppress this fact that national solidarity is legally constructed, the political level of civic integration here acquires an entirely independent weight compared to the older informal layers of social cultural integration. Unlike the organic solidarity among neighbors in a village or the loyalty to a territorial law, which rests on existing forms of social integration, national consciousness is the result and was the result of an organized form of political integration, an organized form. In our countries, the mass of the population was mobilized over the course of the 19th century and was included step by step in political will formation. In contemporary democracies, a comparatively high level of political inclusion has been achieved. We have to keep this political level in mind if we now want to explain the lack of mutual trust between national populations. I assume that in an open dispute over the goals of European unification, the motives for attachment to one's own national state and the distrust of a European superstate would be clarified and that in the course of such a debate two motives would be clearly differentiated from one another. The lack of trust that we observe at present between European nations is not primarily an expression of xenophobic self-isolation against foreign nations, but instead, at least to a large part, reflect, if not even in the first place, reflect the insistence of self-conscious citizens on the normative achievements of their respective nation-states. In Europe's welfare state democracies, there is a widespread connection among those self-conscious citizens that they owe the fragile resource of free and relatively equitable and socially secure living conditions to the institution of their nation-states. They have a well-founded interest in their nation-states remaining guarantors of these achievements and in not being exposed to the risk of intrusions and encroachments by an unfamiliar supranational policy. This is why I think that the lack of a European people is not an unsurmountable obstacle to join political decision-making in Europe. Indeed, translingual citizenship uniting 
such a wide variety of different language communities is, in fact, a novelty. For this, we need a European public sphere. However, that does not mean a new public sphere. Rather, the already existing infrastructure of the existing national public spheres, and we don't have any others, is sufficient for Europe-wide communication. National arenas only, only, have to be opened up to each other. Moreover, the existing national media are sufficient to provided that they perform a complex task of translation. They must learn to report also on the discussions being conducted in each other's countries about the issues of common concern to all citizens of the Union. Then, the trust among citizens that currently exists in the form of a nationally limited civic solidarity of, uh, 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 yeah, civic solidarity may well develop into the even more abstract form of trust that reaches across national borders. The no-demosthesis obscures the factor that we must take seriously, namely the conviction that the normative achievements of the democratic state are worth preserving. This self-assertion of a democratic civil society is something different from the reactive clinging to naturalized characteristics of ethno-national origin that lead support to right-wing populism. Under the given conditions, such democratic self-assertion speaks for the attempt to realize a supranational democracy because it is not as if democracies confined within nation-states could preserve their democratic substance because they are affected and in a rapidly growing measure they are affected by involvement in the systemic dynamics of a global uh, society. This is true, uh, at any rate, for all of our uh, small European societies and states, including, of course, Germany. Now, I come... Uh, no, I have, I have some more. I, I started around uh, a quarter to one, yeah? uh, ten to one, yeah. Okay. <laughs> then I, uh, uh, this was, a, if you like, the political part of my lecture, uh, although I think uh, with good uh, academic arguments that you can check in the literature. Uh, but now uh, I come to the last part of my lecture to some legal issues which is uh, more of interest for uh, political scientists and legal uh, scholars. Legal issues of the required form of the, uh, of the existing institutional treaties have been widely discussed by experts at least uh, since uh, two and a half decades, with growing intensity. I want to address this question from the perspective of democratic theory, I am a philosopher, with a view to those competing objectives that arise from the two well-founded interests 
of European citizens we have just discussed. On the one hand, they must take an interest in forming a supranational policy capable of acting effectively in a democratically uh, legitimate way to solve the problems currently weighing upon European peoples, including the Norwegian peoples, who are even more uh, in the mess, because you are defending on European decisions already today in which you don't participate. So here, the problem is even aggravating, on which I am talking, that they are also, and in growing measure, affecting us as members of the European Union, of the European Union uh, constructed in such a technocratic way. Um, on the other hand, this is one interest, and I know we have to discuss that uh, in the discussion period. On the other hand, citizens want to impart on this transnationalization, supranationalization of democracy only, subject to the proviso that their nation states in their role as future member states remain guarantors of the level of justice and freedom uh, that is already achieved now. Thus, the supranational polity, the higher political level in the supranational polity, the higher political level, the European level, should not be able to overwhelm the lower level of the nation state. That is, the issue of ultimate decision-making authority should not be resolved through uh, hierarchy, as it is the case in federal states. The supranational federation should instead be constructed in such a way that the heterarchical, horizontal relationship between the member states and the federation remains intact. To solve this problem, uh, I have proposed a thought experiment. Philosophers are strong in providing thought experiments. Let us imagine a democratically developed European Union as if its constitution had been brought into existence by a double sovereign. The constituting authority, according to this thought experiment, is to be composed of the entire citizenry of Europe, on the one hand, and of the different peoples of the particular nation states on the other. Now, actually these are identical peoples, because the peoples of the nation states are composed of the same people, which are forming, on the other hand, a European wide citizenry. You have to keep that in mind. These are the same peoples who have now to look for a compromise with themselves. But I am, in my thought experiment, I am talking about European citizens and European peoples. Because these are different interests. Where am I? <laughs> I'm, I'm lost here. Now, already during the constitution framing process, the one side should be able to address the other side with the aim of achieving a balance between the two competing interests that we had mentioned. Yeah? A, a working union on a democratic uh, base, yeah? and on the other hand, strong nation states being guarantors, uh, giving a guarantee 
Net the level reach is not uh, under, uh, under done. Yeah. Um, as compared with uh, the usual scheme for democratic constitution making, what is new in this scenario is that the higher level sovereign, the composed sovereign, can no longer decide in a legally sovereign manner. For the leveling up of the European citizens by the admission of the European peoples indicates that the sovereign must have already committed itself from the outset to recognizing the historical achievements of a level of justice and freedom embodied in the nation-states. If we now come back from this perspective of a double sovereign to our basic question, which further reforms of the existing European treaties are necessary in order to eliminate the existing legitimation deficits of the European Union in a future political union of which we can, I can realistically only think in terms of a future uh, Euro Union within a differentiated European Union. Then, if we think of that, then the baseline for an answer is obvious. The European Parliament would have to gain the right to take legislative initiatives and the so-called ordinary legislative procedure, which requires the approval of both chambers, would have to be extended to all policy fields in addition. The political council, thus the assembly of heads of governments who to this day enjoy a rather semi-constitutional status, would have to be incorporated into the Council of Ministers. Finally, the Commission would have to assume the function of a government which uh, is, however, answerable equally to the Council and uh, the Parliament. We had this conflict in institutionalizing uh, uh, the head of the formation now after uh, the elections, which only makes us aware of the fact that we don't have political parties. Because if you would apply to the paragraph uh, 17 uh, something of the uh, European Union Treaty, if we would have, if we would correctly apply uh, the equal participation of uh, the council that proposes uh, or not proposes Mr. Juncker uh, and uh, the people that do choose and then after the election have chosen among candidates, then it is clear that there must be an institution of European parties which at the time when they make their lists of candidates have to seek the approval of uh, uh, the uh, council. I mean, you, you see that, that certain uh, uh, paragraphs which are already valid in our treatment cannot even apply according to their uh, meaning. Um, yeah, with this transformation of the Union into a supranational polity, satisfying democratic standards, the principle of the equality of states and the principle of the equality of citizens would be accorded equal consideration. That is the 
basic idea. The democratic will of the two constitutions forming subjects would be reflected both in the symmetrical participation of the two chambers in the legislative process and in the symmetrical status of parliament and council with respect to the executive branch. You should note that such a federalized, yet supranational union without taking on the form of a state of its own would still deviate markedly from any federal state. Interestingly enough, current EU includes a range of important provisions that, on the assumption, of a sovereignty shared by European citizens and peoples can be understood as legitimate deviations from the model of a uh, uh, federal uh, state. Now, let us assume I am coming to the end, and this is my conclusion for political theory, let us assume that a reformed union would be reconstructed as if, I mean, from, he, from hindsight, yeah, as if it were the outcome of the constitution-building process of a double sovereign. What justifies us in calling such a federation, which falls short, of uh, the model of a federal state to call it a democracy. What, is the, what are the credentials? With the doubling of the constitutional, uh, of the constituting powers, the democratic legitimation of the constituted polity shifts from the level of the constitution building process to the meta-level, the previous meta-level of justifying the peculiar composition of the constituent, if only composed, authority itself. What counts as a legitimizing reason at this meta-level are the assumptions which I have mentioned and which I have developed empirically so, at least by suggestion, uh, in the first part of my paper. First, the citizens of the future European Union, taken as a whole, are willing to share equal rights with the people of the future member states, and second, the peoples of the future member states are willing to participate on the condition that in the supranational political community the established, uh, the, uh, to be established the integrity of their states in their role as guarantors of historically achieved levels of freedom and justice is assured. However, the willingness on both sides to accept these terms does not fall from the sky. Neither the concession made by the future European citizens to restrict their sovereignty in favor of the involvement of the European peoples, nor the reservation that the latter make by insisting on the normative substance of their respective national states. From the perspective of democratic theory, the agreement by the two sides to cooperate in founding a constitution opens up a new dimension. Historically speaking, such an agreement with Europeans must reach with themselves is always the outcome of a painful learning process. Such a process, one which precedes the actual process of constitution-making, and which we now counterfactually, I mean, uh, uh, put only at the beginning of a process, which in fact 
we would uh, uh, reconstruct from inside. Yeah? Now, uh, this is reminiscent of the controversy leading up to the foundation of the United States as recorded in the Federal Papers. However, net discussions in the late 18th century had a different outcome. At the end of a rather long fast beset by conflicts, one which even led through a civil war, stood at the end of it, there stood the first democratically legitimated federal state. We Europeans are currently engaged in a discussion in uh, uh, the European Union that is similar to that old discussion in some respect. To judge by the course of our present discussion, it does not seem possible to resolve the tension-laden relationship between the two subjects, the citizens and the peoples, in favor of a hierarchical uh, arrangement. The best possible outcome uh, of its discussion is that the citizens harmonize their two allegiances when they push ahead with the integration process as if they had participated in the constitution building process from the outset as equal uh, subjects. Um, as you know, following in the footsteps, and this is my last paragraph, following in the footsteps of the two constitutional revolutions of the late 18th century, many more constitutional states have been founded right up to the present day. All of these constitutional foundations can be understood at the requisite level of restriction as repetitions, replications of the two original founding acts in Philadelphia and Paris. As is now apparent, the creation of a supranational democracy, by contrast, cannot be understood on the same model of a two-stage process, according to which a uh, constituting of the state power underlines the political procedures within the constituted polity. A more suitable model in uh, our case is instead a three-stage model in which the existence of democratically constituted nation-states is already presupposed with the citizens who want to defend the historical outcomes of previous constitutional revolutions, a subject comes into play that now empowers itself to serve as another constituting authority. Unlike the case of the revolutionary popular sovereign of the 18th, 19th, and 20th century, this is, of course, not a case of self-empowerment in the strict sense. Uh, at present, the self-empowerment of our various national citizens to engage, so to say once again, in constitution building at a higher level depends on, in my experiment, on the consent of a classical popular sovereign, which now comes on the scene in the guise of the totality of European citizens, and that must be willing in turn to divide its constituent authority. Thus, with the prior constitution of a higher level sovereignty itself, Hence, with the agreement between the two designed constitution-building subjects, the classical picture of a constituting and a constituted 
level is supplemented by a further dimension that once again underlies the actual constitution building process and this first step in our three-stage model yields a very benign, I admit, interpretation of the rather confused opinion and will formation regarding European issues in which all of our populations are involved or are not yet sufficiently uh, involved today. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, yeah, I appreciate that.